Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. The passage may be found in your pew Bible on page 879. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, again we approach you, asking that you would be our teacher. We humble ourselves in your presence. Lift us up by your Spirit as you instruct us in your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1517, when Martin Luther was still a young Roman Catholic priest, He was just beginning to understand justification by faith. And as a priest, he would listen to the confessions of his parishioners. All of a sudden, however, many from among his flock would tell him that they no longer needed to repent of their sins because they had purchased indulgences for themselves from a traveling priest named John Tetzel. John Tetzel... Uh, was a Roman Catholic priest, and he was traveling near uh, the city in Germany, Wittenberg, and the people were going to him to purchase these indulgences that would grant them forgiveness of sins, that would grant them God's favor, that would grant them freedom from purgatory. And these purchases uh, could not only be purchased for yourself, but for an added price of $19.99, I added that in, uh, you could also buy your dead loved ones way out of purgatory. Listen to just a portion of a sermon from John Tetzel. He said, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us, we are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to his daughter, or to her daughter, we bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel that and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you were able to release them, for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. What had happened was the Pope had allowed the sale of indulgences because he had a building program. Uh, He was just beginning to build uh, what would become known as St. Peter's Basilica. Some of you, if you've been to Italy, have likely toured it if you have ever 
uh, been there. And so the idea of gaining money perverted salvation. This is the reason why Martin Luther wrote the 99 Theses and nailed them to the Wittenberg church door. So this idea you could buy salvation or you could uh, buy your dead relatives way into heaven, it incensed Martin Luther. It was a sale of indulgences that caused him, as I said, to, to write the 95 Theses that, that kicked off the Protestant Re- uh, Reformation. And this is not too different from what was going on in Jesus' day in the temple. This is why Jesus became so enraged and violent when he came into the temple upon uh, his triumphal entry. You will remember from last week, uh, and if you are visiting with us, we are going through the Gospel of Luke, passage by passage, even verse by verse. And so you will remember from last week that this is the week of the Passover festival, where Jews and even many God-fearing Gentiles streamed into Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, the population of Jerusalem in a, on a normal week would be 80,000. But during this week when the Passover uh, festival was taking place, there would be 200,000 uh, people in the city. And so for for so many people to travel to Jerusalem from such a long distance, well, it wasn't practical for them to bring their own animals for the sacrifices that God had commanded them to bring. And not only was it impractical to travel with the animals, but the animals um, for, that they offered for sacrifice had to be without blemish. So God allowed that there would be uh, markets outside the city where people could uh, come and buy the animals for the sacrifice. And uh, he did not, however, intend for his temple to be turned into a marketplace. The markets could have been set up anywhere. In fact, uh, historically speaking, we know that there were four different markets during the Passover week that were uh, set up on um, on Mount Bethel outside the city. But the chief priest uh, had brought the market inside the temple so that he could, of course, get a little slice of the income, uh, money perverting uh, the, uh, the religion, money perverting, uh, salvation, and because the priests were the ones who inspected the animals for the blemishes, they could easily find ways, of course, to disqualify any animals that were not bought at the official market that was run from inside the temple. Josephus, you may have heard of Josephus, he was a historian living at the time. Uh, he wasn't a Christian, he was a Jewish historian. And he wrote uh, that Annas, the high priest, or Ananias, sorry, the high priest, was a great procurer of money. And I'm sure that there was a convenience upcharge that was was added uh, if you 
uh, for the convenience of waiting until you got to the temple to buy your animal for sacrifice. In other words, there was a lot of corruption happening by those who were supposed to be encouraging the worship of God. Instead, they were hindering worship. They were profiteering off the name of God. What makes this so heinous is that salvation is a free gift. The gospel is not for sale. It takes money, of course, to run an effective ministry, and God commands his people to trust him enough to pay the tithe. He even encourages us to give generously over and above the tithe. But the ministry of the church must never, ever become a profit-centered pursuit. Uh, People in the Brandon community will come to me from time to time for counseling. Pastor, I'm in... I need some help. My wife and I need some help. And they'll want to know how much I charge per hour. I tell them, I don't charge for ministering the gospel. People will call here uh, over the years wanting to inquire about our vacation Bible school. And uh, I do hope and expect that we will have a a vacation Bible school, a live in-person vacation Bible school this year. Um, but the, the parents will call and they'll say, how much is it to attend the, your vacation Bible school? And they'll say that other churches charge this amount, this amount. Well, we don't charge any amount for the privilege of proclaiming the gospel to these children. Jesus said, let little children come unto me. And I, the church is to proclaim the gospel. It is not to become a profit-centered pursuit. Not only were they selling the animals in the temple for the sacrifices, but each adult male uh, commanded by the Lord, as in the Old Testament, was also to pay a temple tax of a half shekel in the, the local currency. And people were coming from all over the uh, Roman Empire, they needed to have their money changed. And so the priest would set up uh, very convenient tables for the money changers. And of course, there would be an upcharge for the, um, the convenience of, ch- of changing your money right there in the temple. You know, if you've ever bought uh, tickets for a sporting event, you know, you go and you see the price and you make all your calculations. Okay, four people are going. This is how much it's going to cost. And then it's like $25, $30 more than you were expecting because of the different upcharges uh, for convenience, uh, so they say. Um, and all these were very ample reasons for Jesus to be angry. But that's not the worst of it. The temple was an enormous complex. You know, in my mind's eye, I used to think of the temple as maybe being a little bit bigger than this building. But when you start studying it, you realize that the temple uh, where Herod had built his temple uh, was like four football fields long by five uh, by six football fields wide it was like 35 acre complex 
It was enormous. The, the property here that, uh, that we own at Westminster Presbyterian Church um, includes the church offices, it includes the manse where Jimbo lives. You know, it's 10 acres. This is an expansive, uh, nice, large piece of property. The Temple Mount was three time, over three times larger than our church property. And um, the temple also consisted of a number of courts. There was the court of the priests, the inner courts. And then outside of that were the court of the Jewish males. Then outside of that were the court of the, the Jewish females. And then outside of that was a rather large court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And these markets that were set up, so that people could come in and buy the animals to change their currency so they could pay the temple tax. Um, these markets were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, I'm sure you've seen movies where uh, an oriental market uh, was depicted. You know, a lot of commotion. The, the businessmen are yelling, uh, trying to draw in people to come and, and buy and sell. I got to go through a market in downtown Kampala when I was in Uganda. Uh, it was craziness. It was loud. It was boisterous. It was uh, confusion. And that is what was happening in the court of the Gentiles. But God commanded that there be a court of the Gentiles included in the temple plans, and it was for the purpose of including the Gentiles in God's people. God intended all along, from uh, Abraham forward, in fact, before Abraham, before the world began, God's intention was to take to make the two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, into one new body, according to the book of Ephesians. And so he had the court of the Gentiles for the Gentiles to come and worship God, to come and draw near to God, to come and fellowship with him, to come and hear the way of salvation. But instead of being able to pray, instead of being able to hear any preaching, instead of being able to offer any sacrifices, there was a marketplace set up where they were uh, to draw near to God. It was impossible for the Gentiles to worship in that environment. So then when Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles, and he witnessed the buying and the selling, knowing that it was that uh, corruption was taking place in the name of God, plus seeing how impossible it was for the Gentiles to worship. He was filled with a consuming zeal for the worship of God. The other accounts in the Gospels are much more graphic than Luke's. Uh, gospel Luke simply says, and when Jesus drew near, and I'm sorry, uh, verse 45, when he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
the other accounts in the other Gospels, much, much more graphic. He overturned the tables of the money changers. It even says he overturned the benches on which they were sitting. He scattered their money all over the floor. He made a a whip out of cords, and he began driving the people out. We've got a few uh, Greek um, students in the congregation. The word for driving them out, ekbalo, throwing them out. It was the same word that that, that the Scripture uses when Jesus cast a demon out of a demon-possessed person. This was a violent act on Jesus' part. The whip, I don't think, was necessarily only for the livestock. And then he would not let anyone pass through the court on their way to the other places in the temple. Because the Jews thought, who cares about the Gentiles? And so they would go through the uh, court of the Gentiles as a shortcut to get to the other courts in the temple. And it was a great commotion, again, impossible for them to worship. And Jesus drove them out. He was not nice. He did not beg anyone's pardon. One commentator, Riley, uh, put it, saying Jesus was not acting in a very Christ-like manner. This is one of the great things that I want you to learn from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is the person, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is not the person we are told he is by our culture. Our culture does not want us to know the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of the Bible is not tame. Our culture does not want us to follow a Jesus who uh, forcefully and violently drove hordes of people out of the temple because zeal for his father's house had consumed him. They don't want us to follow a Jesus, or rather they want us to follow a Jesus that is more akin to Barney the dinosaur um, who sings about sunshine and lollipops than the true Jesus of the Bible. Uh, the, The man who discipled me Uh, when he would talk about Jesus and he would try and illustrate that our conception of Jesus as we get it from culture is so unlike the Jesus of the Bible. He said, um, you know, do you worship the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus who plays uh, third base for the Houston Astros? Because at the time there was a guy named Jesus that was played for the, the Houston Astros. Meekness is not weakness. Being a follower of Christ does not mean that we sit quietly in a corner uh, without opening our mouth or calling out unrighteousness. That's where our culture wants to place Christians, quietly away. There's two, um, two forms of reality, they tell us, two forms of truth. There's Truth in the lower story, that's the truth of science. That's the truth of reality. And then there's this upper realm of truth, um, the, 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 the realm of faith, where we can believe anything and uh, it doesn't have to be true, but we have faith, yah, 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 you know, and, or what's, what's the, the campfire song? Kumbaya, you know. But it has no effect on our our lives. 
Jesus, I mean, that's, that is a false dichotomy. And we are to follow the Jesus of the Bible. It doesn't mean that he is calling us out to be violent. But our Lord Jesus, when he drove people out of the temple, he was filled with love. Love for God's holiness and glory. Love for the Gentiles who could not worship in the midst of chaos. Jesus' people are not to be... Um, oh, the word that, that I had is just went uh, milk toast. We're not to be milk toast Christians. We don't have a milk toast Savior. You know, Jeremy's going to start preaching through Ezekiel next Sunday. And I got to tell you, when Jeremy told me he was going to start preaching through Ezekiel, I started to scratch my head. I'm like, hmm. Um, and I, I told Jeremy, I said, you know, you're not going to get to smile at the congregation a lot um, while you're preaching through Ezekiel, because Ezekiel's talking about a lot of judgment. And a preacher is to, um, is to embody the, the emotions and the tone of the Scripture. And so I, I warned Jeremy, well, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. As I thought about it more, I was reminded that as we see and hear God acting in the book of Ezekiel, we are hearing from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We need to hear Jesus speaking and acting in Ezekiel. We cannot separate the Jesus from in the Old Testament from the Jesus in the New Testament. We need to know Jesus in his holy wrath as well as his self-giving grace. We need to see the frown of God as well as his smile. There is no contradiction at all between Jesus' wrath and his grace. In fact, Seeing Jesus in his holy wrath against the priest and against the money changers in the temple reminds us how much that Jesus hates sin. But then we're also reminded that Jesus became sin, that which he very much hated because he loves us so much, so that we would be the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I want to close by continuing to look at Jesus. Do you remember how I said last week that Jesus made his way towards Jerusalem in a very calculated and premeditated way? Going and having the, the, uh, the donkeys... Uh, going and getting the donkey, riding purposely on the donkey to announce unmistakably uh, in fulfillment of Zechariah that he was the king coming to his people and it stirred up the crowd, which Jesus intended to do? Well, in this very same way, Jesus is continuing with his premeditated plan. In Micah chapter, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 3, the last chapter in the Old Testament, we read, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming when he comes into the temple? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Jesus was cleaning house in the temple. And I guarantee you, when Jesus started overthrowing those uh, tables and throwing people out, that the people who were witnessing this had Malachi uh, chapter 3 running through their minds. Plus, uh, in verse 46, where he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He is quoting when he says, My house shall be a house of prayer. He is quoting from Isaiah 56. When he says, when he refers to you making um, the temple into a den of a, a den of robbers, he is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. In other words, he is very consciously fulfilling scriptures, prophecies of the Messiah. He was declaring himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Jesus is not a tame Savior. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. Jesus is the Almighty Savior. From eternity past, Jesus was dedicated to put himself in the crosshairs of his enemies so that he could be our Savior. Verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple, so he cleans house and then starts doing what was intended to be done in the temple. He's teaching the Word of God in the temple every day. So he, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The, it's interesting. In John chapter 2, Jesus said he was the temple. Remember how he said, uh, you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up from the dead? And John has a little, um, little note. He was speaking of his body because Jesus was the temple. That's why all these, these instructions that have killed many a person's goal to get through the Bible in a year because you run up on Leviticus and uh, the end of, of Exodus and all these instructions. The reason why there are so many very particular instructions because it was pointing not only to the gospel, it was pointing to our Savior. And of course, the Lord Jesus Uh, was speaking of his resurrection from the dead. They put him in the grave. He rose from the grave victoriously after three days. But you know what happened after he rose? He ascended into heaven, and as he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit. And so now where is the temple? You say, well, it's up in heaven. You read Revelation chapter 22. There is no temple. But you read 1 Corinthians 6. The temple is sitting right here in these pews. Uh, You are the temple of God.
because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are the present day temple. And Christ is making you beautiful. He's polishing the, the, the rough edges off through sanctification. He, is, he has made you, um, he's given you free access to God because of justification by faith. Your sins are forgiven. You are the temple of God that Christ um, so loves. So I want to encourage you uh, this morning that... Um, that God loves you. And even when we see his frown from time to time because we get off the path, he always has his smile upon us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that um, you cleaned the temple because you so loved these Gentiles and you so loved your Father's glory, we thank you that you loved us and made us temples of the Holy Spirit. Help us to shine for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.